Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. This is the second episode we recorded a couple of weeks ago live in the Elgar Room, the cabaret bar at Royal Albert Hall. Robin and Josie and our guest, Reginald D. Hunter. Before we start, thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Book Shambles, uh, no, that's not the address. That's terrible. That's wrong. I say it every week and yet this today I've said it wrong. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles, that is the address to go to to pledge to support the show. As little as a dollar a month, you'll get extended episodes of Book Shambles. You'll get behind-the-scenes goodies. Uh, sometimes we'll give out free tickets to our Patreon supporters just to come along to various shows, including uh, the, the two we did with Wendell and Reg at Royal Albert Hall. We gave away some free tickets for our Patreon supporters to come to that live recording. So head to patreon.com com slash book shambles and you can support the show and get lots of goodies a reminder that this weekend we will be at both latitude and the blue dot festival we're doing a revival of space shambles on the saturday with robin and susie imber and helen Sharman, the first british astronaut uh we'll be doing that on the saturday the 50th anniversary of the apollo 11 moon landings that's going to be fantastic we're also doing events with uh chris lintot and steve pretty we're doing some stargazing events uh robin's doing a solo show we're doing the signals play uh science shambles podcast live with robin and helen chersky and susie again and uh kevin fong then on the Sunday, we'll be up at Blue Dot. Robin is staying at Latitude to do a book talk. We're going up to uh, Blue Dot to do Signals again and then another live Science Shambles podcast with Helen Chersky and Chris Lintot and Matthew Cobb and Susie Imber on that panel. So if you are at either of those festivals, come along and see us. We're in the Speakeasy and the Film and TV Arena at Latitude and then the Notes stage at Blue Dot. Come and say hello. We would love to see you there. Lots of other things coming up on the Cosmic Shambles Network. There's one uh, small thing we might tell you about uh, by the time we get to the next episode of Book Shambles. Who's to say? Uh, But in the meantime... Enjoy this episode with Robin and Josie and Reginald D. Hunter. So, welcome back, Robin and Josie, and our guest for this episode, Mr. Reginald D. Hunter. Hello. Hi. Um, Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Today, our guest is Reginald D. Hunter. That's just for the recording bit. Um, And where I, I. Thing. I, w- I want to start off, uh, before we start talking about books, uh, about the fact that you, you sometimes, there's a certain amount, sometimes you, you get a bit consternation about some of the things you say and, and these kind of, and it's something that the last time that we were together was we were doing uh, a show in memory of our friend Barry Crimmins, who's a, uh, hopefully some of you know about, a, a brilliant American comedian who uh, uh, died last uh, February and... Uh, I had a, a long conversation with him once about ethics and comedy. And when you work out 
because Barry would he was he he would take no prisoners, but he was always kind of he was always punching up, wasn't he? He was yeah. never never a comic that punched down. And he said this thing where he said, you know, for me, he said, I have to remember that words are shrapnel, and you have to think about where you fire them. And I, I know this is kind of starting straight off, but which is when you're coming up with stand-up ideas, and when you're thinking about the kind of topics that you're going to deal with in a show, do you have that moment of going, right? I'm now going to imagine the argument that I'll have with someone in a bar afterwards and how happy I'll feel and what I'm going to say when they, when, if someone finds themselves outraged or annoyed or critical of what you're saying. Do you kind of go through that process? I don't know if it's that way for me. Um, I know that if I'm, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, if I'm, if I'm touching the ideas that I want to touch on in my jokes, then somebody's going to feel poked. You know, my mom used to always say, hurt dog or holler. And so, you know, people feel accused and stuff sometimes. And what I find is that when people do really get upset, no matter how well you've crafted your joke, they, uh, they personalize it. And, and it means that they feel like you're talking directly to them, which means you're getting through. It's just they're not giving you the laughs you want. They ain't rewarding you. They're mad at you, but you, you know, you, they feel it because you don't want them to. I, I know for myself, I don't, I don't want them to just laugh. laugh. I'm looking for different sounds, you know. I'm looking for that big laugh. I'm looking for that involuntary laugh. I love to laugh for people who come to judge and not laugh, but they can't help themselves in the way be like, damn you! <laughs> <laughs> and, but then the thing I love more than the, even the biggest laugh, even more than rolling laughter, is gasps. Like, <gasps> that's the sound. <laughs> that's, that's what you're looking for right there. If you could do an hour of pure astonishment. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll create a vacuum, and that would be a disaster. And that that may well no then lead to a new room. universe, and oh, man, well, don't get me to multiverse. Well, maybe theory. one day I get out of this and I'll open my own astonishment club. <laughs> <laughs> How was it? I was absolutely blown away. I wasn't as astonished as I thought I'd be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, so do you find... Have, have you found your own opinions changing through the act of actually doing, you know, when you're doing stand-up sometimes and you see different people's reactions and you think, ah, maybe, does it ever work that way? My own opinion about the joke I'm doing? Well, generally your opinions, where as you go out and you go on tour and you meet lots of different people and you also see their reactions to what you're saying, do you sometimes go, ah, that's interesting, I hadn't thought of, you know, do you sometimes get just from their reactions, do you start to see different angles and does it ever change you? Oh, yeah, sometimes you do something and you think it's funny, and people don't laugh. And you try it two or three more times the exact same way, people still don't laugh. And then other times you do it, and then sometimes it hurts people. They go, ooh. Um, Mike Wilmot told me this great, this great thing. He said, doing jokes in, like, um, in Norway, he says, they're so innocent, and then they love the stories. He says, they'll be sitting there listening to a joke, and they'll go, oh, no, you were telling such a beautiful story, and then you... You just lied at the end. Why did you do that? <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, I, I, that, that's how... I mean, I remember that. I think the first time I gigged with you, it might have been someone like Brighton, I remember playing yeah. you know, a club. That under, and it's been really fascinating watching... I, I, I think some of us, it takes ages to find the kind of voice that you actually want to use on stage. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think I'm probably still trying to find it. And, and do you remember, was there a moment where you... Is it a moment or is it a long period of time where you, that you go on stage and you go, oh, yeah. 
this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. This is because I think for all of us sometimes, you know, you, you start off and you're doing jokes and you're doing what you presume comedy is kind of meant to be in, in whatever way you've, you've perceived that. And sometimes it's not kind of a very authentic thing. But you're doing the gags and it appears to be working and you get your 40 quid at the end of it and that kind of... And then there can be a moment where you go... Sometimes it's dying on your ass. Sometimes you die on your ass and you go, oh, but I died on my ass with something that I really enjoyed doing. So this is not a good career, but I'm going to fucking keep going anyway. You know, that... <laughs> now, two years ago, I broke my leg. And before I go any further, just thank God for the NHS. Thank God I didn't break my fucking leg in America. Um, uh, <laughs> I broke my leg... And I was doing this gig. I came back early. I still needed to be laid up, but I was in a wheelchair. I needed to finish the tour. Got a big payroll. And, and so I had taken my medication for my leg, and I had taken it wrong. And I was on stage, and I was cooking the first 20 minutes. But then 20 minutes in, it's like my brain, my brain monitor went blank. And I saw some fish chasing some deer in the field. And, and, and so I kept talking. And... After a while, I could hear myself, and it was just, and I just took a deep breath, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, you'll be able to collect a refund from the house porter. I said, I, I don't think I'm representing myself very well tonight, so I think I'm going to quit. And leave it to British people to give me the biggest stand of, standing ovation I've ever gotten before or since for fucking failing. <laughs> All of a sudden, I understood your love of Eddie the Eagle. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you've never managed to find the correct wrong prescription again, have you? I'm fucking ruined my brain on all these pills. I can't find the right. That's a, one of my favourite versions of that was uh, there used to be, it was, it was a gig at, I think it was High, High Wycombe College or something like that, and they were quite a kind of weird, tough crowd. And uh, there's a wonderful comedian called Martin Davis, and mm. uh, he actually get, someone threw a bottle and he was concussed and fell off the stage. Oh my and God. everyone uh, and everyone turned on this guy, turned on the guy who did it. And uh, and I went back on stage. I was comparing it, and uh, Martin was, uh, and I said, "Well, we're going to probably have to stop the gig." And, they, and then the audience changed. They hadn't really gone with Martin, but suddenly went, "No, bring him back on, bring him back on." And hey, and he came back on this noble hero. And then he started. And after three minutes, they started going, "Boo, boo!" Again, it was like, <laughs> "Oh man, we only like you on principle." <laughs> We liked you when you were injured, but you seem to be healing. <laughs> boo, boo. <laughs> and, like, you must have had a very interesting experience in terms of performing here for 20 years, mm. but starting out as somebody saying, right, I'm an American in Britain. Here, let me, like, talk about your culture. And then sort of, now you've lived here 20 years, so it's not the same. You're not an outsider. You're, like... How's that affected your stand-up? Like, how do you feel about that? One of the reasons I fell in love with being here is because I felt like, back home in Georgia, I felt like a, I felt like an outsider all the time. I mean, I love chess and I love I love I, I love reading, and I only liked Jesus. So I was. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't get a bumper sticker that says that. <laughs> And so you know, it was, I, I, it was it was it was aggravating and baffling to me why I, I was such an outsider to my own family, my own culture. And I came here to London, and in a sense, everyone's an outsider here, which kind of makes your family. And so yeah, I, and, and and what's weird is I've stayed here long enough that when I go back home to America to do stand up, I have to play outsider status when I go back there too. <laughs> it's like I, I can try to fake it, but. 
They catch on after a while. <laughs> so what were the books you said you, so you loved reading when you were growing up? Do you remember the, the, the first books that you just thought, uh, you know, you, you really just adore and you keep going back to? Well, um, I have five older sisters, and uh, they were all coming back from college and starting their first marriages when I was, you know, when I was a child. And as my mother said, um, my daughters went off to school and came back around 1974 and told me I didn't understand anything about raising black boys. And so, and so the, my sisters were the ones that dictated, you know, my reading choices or my reading options, and I, I'm grateful for that. Um, I remember a lot of Judy Bloom books. <laughs> Page oh, 73 of forever, guys. Page 73 of forever. <laughs> Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> um, and I, I remember getting a lot of black histories, uh, a lot of black literature, I remember my sister standing over me, insisting that I read The Bluest Eye. Um, as a boy, I remember you know, Dr. Seuss, Charlie Brown. I mean, it's like... I, Charlie Brown, did you go to I that exhibition? I Charlie Brown. Was, there, was, there was an exhibition. Did anyone go to that? It was absolutely fantastic. It was, it was uh, um, at the, not the court hall, but just around the back of the court hall. And it was such an interest. Seeing his politics and how he became, like when he introduced Franklin into Peanuts, mm. was because people kept writing. African-Americans said, please, can you put... And, and he was like, I'm worried. I'm worried that I'm, it might look tokenistic. And they went, do you know what? For your worry of tokenism, actually what it would, the good side it will do. And, and they had the first strip, which which involves Franklin, and it's Franklin talking about the fact that his dad was in Vietnam. Because mm -hmm. Charles Schultz thought, well, hang on a minute, you know, for African-American kids, a lot more of their dads are in Vietnam mm -hmm. than, than for the white kids. And I thought, you know, seeing that kind of... You just think, oh, they're just these lovely stories of kind of... My, my son actually, he loves Peanuts, but for a while he stopped liking Peanuts. He said, I don't like Peanuts after 1960. I said, is it because he changed the way he drew it? He went, no, it's Charlie Brown. He's so self-pitying. He's got all these people who want to be friends with him. But, and I thought that, as an eight-year-old, the fact he went, no, I've decided that this level of existential anxiety is uh, frankly selfish and narcissistic. He's back into it now because he's 11. So, um, but, it's kind of, but it's such a... Peanuts is like Calvin and Hobbes. It has this incredible humanity in it. I think, uh, looking back at it, I wonder how much Charlie Brown contributed to a certain melancholy I had as a child because I didn't know... By the time I was eight years old, I knew how to use the word depression in a sentence because I'd been reading Charlie Brown. <laughs> and, and, I, and I wonder if knowing the word and seeing it immortalized in this cartoon made me go, ah, give me some depression too. Yeah. <laughs> Mom, I want a beagle. <laughs> I'm an adventurous beagle. But it's I, great. Like, I, want, I want a friend my age I could just walk down the street with and put my arm up on a bridge and be philosophical about death and life and just... <laughs> <laughs> So Peanuts, Dr. Zeus, I, I think, is still... It's one of the favourite things as a, as a parent. Well, I don't know if you've started doing it yet. That Not bit yet. when they like it being read and you think, oh, good, I can do Fox and Socks tonight. Um, and then after that, where did you go with... Uh... Uh, I think my first serious read that I fell in love with was uh, Richard Wright's Black Boy, which um, I was in a bookshop the other day looking for a copy. Uh, 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 what's the other one? That, that, the other famous one is in the shop. Uh, and I love the way Richard Wright writes. In fact, I think I'm going to try my hand at trying to duplicate some of Richard, his, his style in Black Boy. It's, 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 a very, um, it's a very comedic style, actually. And then 
And see, my memory is blotchy because somehow, between now, I remember I went through all the Anne Rice novels for a while. Um, and my mother, being deeply Christian, um, found that deeply upsetting. Um, she thought it was too much to toast the occult. And, but I, I always liked things that um, investigated the nature of humanity. And, you know, and I appreciated the black literature that I was getting, but I know that when I first started doing stand-up, I made the decision that I wanted to speak to everyone. Anybody that, you know, was in listening distance and they understood English, I'm supposed to get them, you know? And so, yes, stuff like that. And do you find, when, when you're putting together new shows, I mean, for, actually, I'm interested in how you write them. I mean, do you, because uh, some people just write kind of little notes and develop them on stage. Do you ever find yourself kind of going into a writerly mode when you're working and, and think, do you know what, I want this to have an extra bit of poetry. I don't just want this to come through well, it's improvisation. it's funny you should ask that now, because it's like... My, my girlfriend keeps telling me, she keeps trying to remind me that I have the right to be angry on stage. And I'm in the habit of not being angry, particularly when I'm presenting to white people. Uh, my mother, t t you know, she complained to me, she says, you big and you black, if you just, even if you quiet in the wrong way, it's upsetting the white people, so just don't. <laughs> and so, and, and it's become a, a, a secondary sort of consciousness. And my girlfriend was pointing out to me, she says, it's times that it's appropriate during your stand-up to get angry, not lose control, but, and it's like, and I think, and so as I'm writing this show, I'm trying to write it not being overly conscious of my trying to soft-sell myself so I'm not too much, I'm not too sharp or too smart or too edgy or too mean. It's just, I have to stop worrying that my natural strength will hurt people because, you know, David Banner, even though he turned into the Hulk, he was not a killer. <laughs> but also, it's, it's so important for sort of the evolution of your persona to be able to go, no, this is me in my fullness as a human being who has every emotion. Do you know what I mean? I like obviously my stand-up is it's not comparable um, in terms of what I've felt able to do or not able to do. Um, but I do remember initially starting stand-up and only wanting to do things that were positive and nice. Yeah, I remember those years. <laughs> but I didn't think you'd make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did, but, but it's like... And I'm glad I was wrong. But yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's like only having one uh, room in your house when you know there's other rooms. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we live in London, so there's one room in our houses, but... Uh, <laughs> but, do you know what I mean? It's like saying, no, no, this is the only room that I show guests so that you don't see the other rooms, and, you know, they're all still there, and it's so important. Well, it's like I saw um, this... I was watching Netflix, and I was looking at a comedian on there that um, I was looking forward to seeing, because I found him genuine, genuinely funny just please before. Say please say um, It would be indelicate to say. And I thought to myself, my God, I want to be mad at him, but I, I'm mad at the people closest to him. How come nobody's telling a 49-year-old, 50-year-old comic that it is no longer appropriate to be talking about pussy in this way? You're a grown man with children. And that's where I am right now. It's like, it's, I know who I've been, but the thing that worked for me at 35, it was cute then. It's like my mom had said. She said, when you was five, you used to speak to adults like they were your equal. But by the time you were six, it had ceased to be cute. 
<laughs> but again, that's like the... Um, what's the word that... Uh, is it vocation? It's, it's like stand-up. Sometimes you feel... One feels like, without sounding too pretentious, like it's a calling, like it's a vocation. Like, And that's what I love about it, is that you travel through your life and it moves with you. Mm. And, you know, you stand-up now, yeah, it's... There's no way. If it was the same as 20 years ago, you'd be... Mm. <laughs> Cut it out! <laughs> if it was the same as 20 years ago, it would, be, it would be so wrong, right? Yeah. See, 15 years ago, I never would have thought you'd have the balls to say something like that. Oh, You're 15 like, years <laughs> ago, I would never have said it. 15 years and a child. <laughs> yeah, I've got a baby, I don't give a fuck. Oh, man, it's like... um. I did um, this uh, couple of music documentaries for the BBC uh, where I had to go back to the Deep South. Oh, thank you, most kind. <laughs> where I had to go back to the Deep South and chart the origins of some, some popular Southern music. And also I had to go on a bit of an emotional journey because for whatever reason, middle-class white people in this country seem to really need that. And so... Um, <laughs> what did you learn, Reg? What did you learn? What, how did you change? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> my point. Um, <laughs> and oh, and what was weird was when I went back to doing stand-up, when I went back to touring, people who had never even heard of me before that started to coming to my stand-up shows, and it was like they were expecting me to be that guy that I was. And it's just, and as I said on stage, I said, "You're welcome." I said, "A lot of you have come in just like this." and gotten shocked out of fanhood. It's, um, it's like, where's the red card? Just, where's that empathetic way in which you speak? I can't speak with em empathy right now. I'm a stand-up comedian. I have to poke you through your fucking soul. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, Paul Sinha, of course, has had that because Paul Sinha became tremendously famous from doing The Chase mm -hmm. and would start to get all of these audiences coming, oh, brilliant, we're going to go see that bloke who just does lots of answers. Oh, I didn't know he was gay and a former doctor. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's a fantastic thing where he used it as this kind of Trojan horse, basically. Well, not, he didn't even have to go to that much carpentry effort. You know, he just, uh, he was, th there they were, and he thought, well, you've come to see me, so you're going to get me as well. You know, and, and that, that, I think, is a very interesting thing. He didn't know how famous he was in New Zealand. The chase is on about seven times a day, and he went to do some gigs in New Zealand. And it's like, but that's a beautiful thing, I think, to happen as well. I know sometimes I go to gigs and just before I go to the stage door, there'd be some guy there holding some records for you to sign and he'd be like, why didn't you talk about Elvis? You didn't talk about <laughs> Elvis's influence. And it's like, hey, man. <laughs> and so um, all those things change you too because it's like, I was telling my daughter, I said, um, I said when I was coming up, we were, we were, it seemed to me that our generation and, our, and people up to that time were consistently asking themselves, am I a good person? Uh, or what kind of person am I? And I said, and we seem to live in times now where people seem to primarily ask themselves, do I feel good about the person I am, regardless? And it's like, it just seems like change is afoot right now. And I'm, I feel outdated because I'm constantly asking myself, am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am, 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 I, am, am I supposed to be pushing other stuff? Just. I think the world has become something that none of us was raised to expect it to become, and we're all having various degrees of success coping with that. And I'm really enjoying the fact that what you are applauding is like brilliant point 
it, it feels like we're at a political event, which is, is a real thrill for me because I'm like, yes, I agree. Thank you for the applause. But a wonderfully um, calm yeah. political event, and we need a lot more of yes, those. We do. That's what I think we need a kind of anti-Anthony Robbins thing, where we need the opposite of motivational speaking conferences. We need to teach people to go to libraries and be quiet. You know. Oh, and the first cheer is the yeah. <laughs> I knew my quiet stick would get them whooping. So what, this lady right here in the front row was looking like, oh good, maybe they'll talk about a book soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did want to jump on the back of what you said and say, like, I think that's really true about how the world is now and I think different generations are reacting in different ways and I was going to ask you, have you read anything that you feel like reflected that? What have you enjoyed reading lately that kind of is about what the fuck is going on now, you know? Oh, man. You just asked me a question right in my wheelhouse. Um, After I agreed to do this, um, and please remember that um, I've been, I moved out, my last place burned down about three years ago. And I I had moved out like a week before that, but who? And um, (laughs) and (laughs) and all of my stuff has been in storage up until like three or four months ago. And You've been a capsule person. Yeah. You've forgotten all the other things. <laughs> and it was only after I signed on to do this that I started opening my box of books. And I was all over the place about what should I choose to do, you know, just... And I, I, I both respect you as my more literate comedy friends. And so... <laughs> I'm very much a hanger-on. <laughs> and so I was like, I didn't want to embarrass myself. So I'll say, first of all, I settled... On, Kind of on talking about um, um, Richard Richard Postman's um, amusing ourselves to death. Um, oh, I love that. It's one of my favourite. <laughs> we must have talked about this before. It's such a great. Do, you, does anyone know it? It's such a uh, amusing ourselves to death. Fuck, Matt. It's it's just how prescient. What it's, it's like thirty four years ago. Tell me more about it, please. It came out um, published in nineteen eighty five, and he's talking about um, um, Orwell's. 1984 versus Aldous Huxley's um, Brave New World. And what he's suggesting, um, relevant to our times, or relevant to his times and prescient to ours, what he's talking about is that what Orwell was saying, the fear is that what we hate, a totalitarian big brother would take over. What Aldous Huxley was arguing was that our choices, the fact that we love being amused, our entertainments, our pleasures, that's what would take over. And he's siding with Aldous Huxley. And he's also explaining, and it's, what's also interesting if you read the book now, is it gives you a sense of the social climate. Because remember, Reagan has just gotten back in office for a second time. And he's pointing out that an actor is leading America. <laughs> and yeah, it's so precious. <laughs> yeah. And he's also talking about how the medium of television uh, changes everything. He's one of the points he makes is like certain mediums are better for f- certain forms of communication than others. So, smoke signals for Cherokee Indians was good for sending you know warnings or brief information, but not good for discussing philosophy. And in the same way, he's <laughs> no good for jokes. <laughs> and he's saying, but he's saying, and likewise, he doesn't believe that television is a conducive medium to discuss true political ideology. It's because it's about pictures. 
Oh, God, I'm so glad he didn't hear about Twitter. He'd be absolutely losing his mind. <laughs> well, there's yeah. a book by Chris Hedges, which is similar, which only came out about five years ago. And it's something like... It's not called Uses of Illusion. It's something like Illusion, I think. And, and he, his first chapter is about how now discourse has become the equivalent of what you see in, in basically wrestling, WWF, WCW. And he talks about the, 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 the fakery and the narratives and how that is now how politics is done. And he talks about, you know, when Trump actually kind of was in the ring and doing stuff with it. And, it, and that's, a, that's another, that's kind of an updating, I think, on Neil Postman's book. But it's, uh, it's, it's just... Well, it's um, empire evolution. Uh, empire evolution, yeah. It's, but it's that idea, isn't it, where Neil Postman basically says, oh, for a moment, I, I know I said I wasn't keen on God, but it seems he suddenly appeared. <laughs> I, uh, and he's very helpful with the footnotes. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> That helps me uh, understand something I've been thinking about, which is the fact that I feel like it is a very modern phenomenon for people at the moment to be deliberately voting for heels just to annoy and upset other people. Like people trolling with votes and enjoying that. Like I feel like a lot of people who currently would support Boris or a lot of people who would support Trump, their reasoning behind it would be, I just want to piss off them. And everything he says pisses off them, so I'm thrilled. And no engagement with the content whatsoever. Mm, uh -huh. And so to see it in wrestling terms is kind of like, yes, yeah, some people want to support the heel for like... Well, there's a great word, Fintan O'Toole, in his recent book all about uh, the kind of the, the, the English mindset which led to Brexit. Um, he uses the, the word sadopopulism. I think that's a fantastic... <laughs> I don't know if he coined it, but that's such a, you know, and that seems to summarize it really brilliantly. Well, one of the things, if, if I could go back, one of the things that Postman says in this book that really is quite striking, he says, um, in the early part of America, America's history, there were certain cities that captured the American spirit of its moment. So, like, uh, there was a period that Boston captured the spirit of political radicalism. And then later in the 19th century, there was a time that Chicago represented that American spirit of cattle. Um, trains, um, industrialization. And then he says, now today, and he's saying this in 1985, the spirit, the city that most captures the spirit of where America's spirit is today is probably Las Vegas. That's not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, I think because Chris Hedges does that great thing where he, he looks at the speeches of presidential candidates over history and looks at the different levels. So you, initially you have this kind of, the, when you go back, not even that far, you know, you go back to the 50s and it's kind of, you know, it's degree level language. It's kind of mm -hmm. there. And then it just goes down and down and down to third grade to second grade. And, you know, by the time, and, and at that point he's still dealing really with the language of, of Bush. And they said, and then you get a little kind of spike when Obama gets in, but then he... He wrote the book before Trump got in. But that's a fascinating thing, which actually the very words of political discourse just become dumber and dumber and dumber. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. And so um, I like that. Um, there was another book, you know, the book that I was going to pull from my, um, that I couldn't find. It was going to be my first choice. Uh, it's a book written by an author named Tanya Landham called Buffalo Soldiers. It's a teen reader. It's a fiction book. Um, and it tells the story of a young slave girl who the Civil War sort of happens around her without anybody discussing it with her or around her. And so everything is a complete surprise, and she's on her own. And she eventually ends up, as a mark of, for purely trying to survive, she ends up joining a regiment as a boy 
of Buffalo soldiers that go that are going to exterminate the American Indians. And it's there that she begins to understand what freedom means. And it's a teen reader, and one of the reasons that I feel like I owe this lady that wrote this book because she's, after she got it published, she saw that a copy got to me. And when I met up with her, she explained that she tried to write from, she tried to write in the voice of me in her head and tried to write how slaves talk. And I smiled and tried not to be offended. And um, yeah. That was a bit of a rollercoaster. So I was like, wow, that's such a, oh. <laughs> And, 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 and it, took me, it took me a couple of times trying to read the book. It took me to read it, or try to read it a couple of times without going, I don't sound like that. <laughs> and, but it is, is an extraordinary book. And I also feel for the author in that I know that she got a lot of guff um, for being white and trying to write supposedly about the black experience, which is an idea, uh, the whole cultural appropriation thing gone mad. I think anybody that writes with humanity and is willing to get off the ass and do research, you can write about anything. And so it's, um, I wanted to talk about that one so, so Ta-da! Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that was great. I want to talk about that one, and I have. That was uh, what, what a beautiful self-sealed piece that was. The, um, and that, that's interesting, cause that, so it's teen fiction. Because mm-hmm. I think there's, that, that's uh, the one thing that I, I, almost, I don't like about the, the, the coining of teen fiction is there's loads of brilliant stuff that I think people don't read because they go, oh, that's meant for teenagers. And mm-hmm. some of the most exciting, I mean, someone who we've had on, on, on this show and, and talked about her work before, but Yana Teller, who has, yeah. has written two, well, I mean, the, the two books first that I've read, one is called War, yeah. which she rewrites for every different country, which is uh, basically what would happen if your government collapsed and suddenly you became a refugee. And it's incredible incredibly potent the way that it basically gives you the story of realizing that those oh the refugees no they've been lots of different things and they've lived in houses like yeah the way that she kind of gives you that sense of these are not people who lived in an entirely different civilization and you go well they're not quite the same as us and they probably don't cry when their children die because they're not really like us you know that and and she writes it so and another one she did called nothing which is all about what you value is it was my favorite book of, of the last year one of the things I admire about Miss Landon, um, she captures something for me that really moves me. I know what it's like to be a child and find yourself in a situation where nobody has explained anything to you. <laughs> no, and nobody's even stopped stop to think that maybe you, you should know something. Uh, when I was about six, no, maybe five, my mother woke me up one day and my sister came by and picked us up. And it was a nice summer day. And I was anticipating playing and watching TV and stuff. But they throw me in the back of a car, and I'm thinking, well, is, this, is this more of this dentist crap or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> and they take me to this kindergarten, and it's all-white kindergarten. And my mom and my sister seem to know the head lady there, and I'm just standing there waiting. And then finally, this white woman walks in. And it's the first white woman I ever remember meeting. She just walks up, and she just, like like a Disney person, a person wearing a Disney costume at Disney World. She walks up and she goes, hi, Reginald. <laughs> and I was just, I was overwhelmed with what I would call that white woman's waft, that mixture of hope and moisturizer. <laughs> but, and then all of a sudden, my, my mom was like, pick you up at three. And I was like, wait. <laughs> And I just found myself, and so the girl in this book 
I mean, in, in, in my situation, nothing in comparison. But this girl in this book finds herself, and I think Miss Landman quite astonishingly captures the wonder of like, hmm, my white master and mistress who hated me and beat me, they running. I wonder what that means. <laughs> and the house is on fire. I wonder what that means. I wonder if they're coming back. I'll stay here. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Uh, do you what, what do you uh, when you when you're writing your shows or thinking about your shows? Do, how much do you find uh, books an inspiration? How much how much of a part do they play? I, I was just uh, touring with Tom Rhodes, um, American comedian, and I told him I said, and he's he's used to pounding it in the American clubs, just pounding it, pounding it. And I told him a couple of things. I said, first of all, I said you have to remember that the British audience, unlike American audiences. British audiences will reward cleverness. Um, American audiences don't, don't quite reward cleverness. Sometimes, most times, they don't even notice it. But they, <laughs> but, but, a, but, but a British audience will go, they may not laugh, but they'll go, that's quite clever. <laughs> <laughs> and just. <laughs> it's sort of like, mm, mm. <laughs> It's not amusing, but it's clever. And, and then I explained to him, I said, also, I told him, I said, a British audience particularly an English audience, they can handle just about anything. They can handle stand-up and political. They can handle stand-up and, and sexuality, stand-up and swearing, stand-up and surreality. They can handle just about anything except, say, sudden surprise. And Tom said to me, what do you mean by that? I said, well, that means if in the first five minutes you're set, you whip your penis out, well, that may go in a number of ways. <laughs> but if you do that in, 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 40 minutes in, but in the first five minutes, if you mention you might do that later, an English audience would be like, fair enough. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> That's how, I mean, that does sound like, you know, one of the problems perhaps with, with, with when you become a comedian and you start to play the clubs, and I think they've changed now, mm. but when there was the big jongler circuit mm -hmm. and it was very much geared towards trying to get hen nights and stag nights in and that and so comedians would very often the moment you go out your you, the body language is attacked the mo oh good there's someone fat sitting in the front row i can belittle them and there's someone and the whole thing comes from this kind of fear and the fear of if you you know i, I remember watching a, a great comic and and he stormed it for 12 minutes and then he started to tell a longer story <laughs> and they drift off at that point and it's like and and people start to get aggressive and then, of course, that's such a very specific form of audience. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of comics, I think you, the, the battle, you, you don't lose that. So suddenly you are playing somewhere that is, is people are going, yeah, you can have time. You can tell stories. But you've become so geared up, so filled with kind of fear that you go, I've just got to get to the punchline. I've just got to get to the punchline. I think all of that's par for the course. You need to know how to play situations like that when you're coming up. Just like at Edinburgh, you need that experience of walking out and finding out there's only four people in the audience tonight. <laughs> you need to find out, you need that. I remember I read this article years, like 20 years ago, or maybe longer before I, before I got here, and it was written by this uh, ex-Harvard president, this man 78 years old, and he still climbed mountains. Oh. <laughs> and he was asked at the time, he says, so how do you do it, how do you beat the mountain? And he says, in the end you realize you don't beat the mountain, you beat yourself. Every time you say, I can't, and you say, one more, he says, the mountain, the mountain going to be there. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, we've run out of time, unfortunately. And, what? Uh, sorry, yes. <laughs> we, we, we were given a deadline, and, we, um, and, it, and it's only fair. We, we that damn Wendell Pierce! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, your show in Edinburgh, you're doing that? Yes. That's next thing, yes. Edinburgh Fringe? Oh, yes, I'm, um, I'm doing previews all this week. Uh, I got previews, my last London previews are next week. And then I do previews for the final week. My new show is entitled The Brand New Full-Throated Adventures of Reginald D. Hunter. Which I love, because that is... <laughs> That's up there with Flash Gordon Conquers Mars, as far as I'm concerned, as a title. So go and see that. That's at the Edinburgh Fringe, and then eventually, obviously, you'll be touring that as, as well. And Josie is also at the Edinburgh Fringe with her first new show for a while, Tender. Yes, my show's uh, called Tender. It's the stand one at 20 past eight every night. Except Mondays, because on Mondays I'm going surfing in Dunbar. <laughs> and, and that's not a public event, you can't join me. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I'm going on holiday to Lyme Regis. Oh, so, that's uh, nice, get some fossils. Yeah, I will get some fossils. Me and my son, we, go, we get our little hammers out and we just bang away, bang away, looking for ammonites. There's never any ammonites. But we enjoy the violence towards geology. <laughs> so um, thank you very much, everyone, for coming down. Uh, thank thank you. you very much to uh, Trent for producing this show. That was uh, another live book shambles with today's guest, Reginald D. Hunter. Thank you very much for listening. Head to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show. Head to cosmicshambles.com for all of the other bits and bobs we're doing. Go to the Edinburgh Fringe website if you're going to the Fringe to get tickets to Reg and Josie's shows. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Uh, Josie is on tour with a couple of work-in-progress shows and then heading up to the Edinburgh Fringe. So the next few episodes, uh, Beck Hill will be back in the studio guest co-hosting with Robin for those episodes. Look forward to those. We will... uh, See you all next week. Thanks for listening. Be good to each other. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.